We're going to be in Psalms 51 today, but the backdrop <coughs> excuse me, of this particular chapter is in another passage of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 11. The year was 1000 B.C., and this man named David, whom God described as a man after his own heart, was about to do the unthinkable. The text in 2 Samuel starts out this way. Let me quote it to you uh, from chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of phrases jump out at me from that particular verse. The first phrase is how in the spring of the year, it was time for the kings to go to war. (laughs) That's always intrigued me. It's almost like uh, in the spring of the year when the flowers begin to bloom and the grass begins to grow and and the trees begin to bud and and when kings go to battle, it's like almost that's was the natural thing to have happen. I heard one preacher comment on this just this week. He said it does make sense if you think about it. They, they didn't want to go to battle during the winter time when it was cold. And so when the weather begins to warm up, that's when it was time to fight if indeed you had a fight waiting for you. I do wish David would have gone to battle with his men. Did you notice the last phrase in verse 1 there? It said that David stayed at Jerusalem. And as it turns out, he would have been much safer in a foxhole than what he was on the balcony of his palace. You remember what happened? He was on that balcony and he noticed, as he looked out over the city, he noticed below him a woman bathing. And it doesn't seem from the text that there was any evil intent on her part. She was just taking a bath. And David happened to be in a position where he could see her, and he did not stop with one glance. He watched her bathe, and he saw that she was beautiful in appearance. And oh my, our eyes. They are such a blessing to us, but they can sure get us into trouble. David should have turned away, but he didn't. He, in fact, inquired about her. Who is she? He asked. The answer given to him was, her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And I can't help but think that whoever David was talking to must have emphasized to him that she was married. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know, you know who Uriah is. He's one of your brave men. He's out there fighting for you right now. He's giving his all for you. That's his wife, David. But none of that mattered to David. He had already window shopped for too long and he did not turn his eyes away from looking at Bathsheba and he followed the lust that was in his heart. He said to his servant, go get her. She was brought to his quarters, and you know the rest of that story. They were intimate with one another. 
And, and maybe you notice the progression here with David. I heard it said in this way. If you hesitate, you will contemplate. If you contemplate, you will negotiate. If you negotiate, you will participate. If you participate, you will desecrate. And it all started when David didn't control his eyes. Well, a few weeks passed, the news came back to David that Bathsheba was pregnant. And boy, did that get his mind to working. Plan A, let's bring Uriah home for a little R&R. And David said to him, go home and wash your feet. That's right there a quote out of 2 Samuel chapter 11. I assure you, there was a whole lot more to that than just good hygiene. David was encouraging him to go home and be with his wife. But Uriah didn't do that. In those days, soldiers took a vow that they would abstain from sexual pleasure during times of war. Uriah was true to his vow. He slept on the doorstep of the palace that night. (laughs) Gone it. Plan B. Let's get Uriah drunk. Maybe in his drunkenness he would forget his vow. But Uriah, in his drunkenness, was more righteous than David in his cover-up. He still didn't go home to his wife. Gone it! And so David got some royal stationery and he penned a letter to Joab, the captain of his army. Dear Joab, do me a favor. Don't ask any questions. Just do what I say. Put Uriah the Hittite on the front line, and when the battle is the most fierce, have all the soldiers draw back from him and let him be struck down. He signed his name to that letter. He folded it and he sealed it with his signet ring, and he gave the letter to Uriah and told him to go and deliver it to Joab. And little did Uriah know that he was carrying his own death sentence. I bet it seemed odd to Joab to read such a command from his king. But he did what the king commanded him to do, and one of God's most faithful men was struck down. Back home, Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband for 30 days. And then after that 30-day time of mourning, David takes her as his wife. And in his mind, this cover-up plan is working. All seemed well until he got a call from the preacher. you got to watch those preachers. Nathan the prophet was not there to chit-chat and drink coffee with him. He came to confront the king over his sin, but he figured maybe the best way to do that is by telling a story. He said, David, I have a story for you. Well, everybody likes a story, don't they? And so, David's ears are all bent towards Nathan. Tell me your story, Nathan. Well, here's the story. There was a rich man with lots and lots of sheep, and there was a poor man who had one little ewe lamb. E-W-E. I, I, I was hearing of a city preacher who was preaching on this text. He knew nothing about sheep and the farm. And so when he got to this point in the story, he talked about this poor man who had one little ee-wee lamb. <laughs> Nathan went on to tell how that one little ee-wee lamb was a 
special part of the family of that poor man. The kids played with the lamb. They, they, let, they fed the lamb from the table. They, they held the lamb at, and slept with the lamb at night. And they caressed the lamb and they loved the lamb. And A stranger came to the rich man's house and needed a place to stay. And he needed a meal to eat. And so instead of taking a lamb from his own flocks where he had many to choose from, he went over to this neighbor's house and he stole that one little ee-wee lamb and, and that's what he served the stranger for supper that night. What do you think, David? Well, when David heard the story, he became livid. He said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet pointed his finger at the king. And he said, David, you are the man. And boy, it was like the truth of God went deep into his heart. It cut to the core. And all he could say as he fell into a heap was... I have sinned against the Lord. And that is the context of Psalms 51. As David is a broken man and he is crying out to God over his sin. And I want to challenge you today that if you want to be a person who is pursuing the heart of God, you need to do it through a penitent heart. A heart of pride is not going to cut it. I want to read to you Psalms 51, the first four verses, and then we'll jump to verse 5. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Skip down to verse 5 there. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Mark Scott, many of you know Mark. He preached a sermon on this text just recently, and he said the reason for verse 5 is that David felt lower than a snake's belly. That's exactly how he put it. His guilt for what he had done was was overwhelming to him. His secret sin had caught up with him finally, and and he feels terrible about it. He's not really saying that he was born a sinner, but what he is saying is that he feels so bad about his sin, and the burden is so heavy for what he has done. He feels like he has been a sinner since, since... since, since, since conception in my mother's womb. It's a case of extreme exaggeration. He's, and I think that fits a whole lot better theologically than, than trying to build a case for original sin. Oftentimes, this is the verse that people point to when they're wanting to talk about, well, we're born in sin. That's not true. We're born in God's image. But David felt so bad over his sin that it felt like he had been a sinner since conception. 
He is owning up to his sin, which is what he needed to do. As you read even those first few verses that we've just finished looking at, you see the personal pronouns are just everywhere in this chapter. Be gracious to me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. I know I have sinned. He's taking responsibility for his sin. And note, he is not trying to point the finger at Bathsheba. He's not saying, she shouldn't have been bathing out in the open. And, and, and she, was, she was tempting me. And, and she should have said no. Well, she should have said no. But David's not saying it's her fault. David has come to a point in his life where he's wearing the blame for what had happened. And that's not always an easy thing to do. We live in an age of entitlement where we justify ourselves and we rationalize and we, we excuse ourselves and we are constantly trying to get the monkey off of our back. Maybe you heard of the little boy who came home with his report card. It was not a good one at all. Four F's and one D. His dad looked at it and asked for an explanation. The boy said, I guess I just worked too hard in that one class, Dad. <laughs> or the other little boy, he had a bad report card too. His dad had one eye on the report card and one eye on his son. And he said, what about this? I don't know, Dad. Do you suppose it's heredity or environment? I mean, we live in a day and age where it's so easy to try and pass the buck and, and not wear the blame. And in this case, David is finally wearing the blame, and we need to wear the blame for our sin too. The first step, if you want to get well in your heart, is to agree with your heavenly cardiologist and say to him, I am sick. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The prophet said. Proverbs 29, 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? The fact is, nobody can say that. We, we cannot reach that point on our own accord where, where we have cleansed ourselves from our sin. We are sinful people and we need to be willing to confess our sins to God. David said in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, I have sinned against the Lord. Nehemiah made a similar confession in his book, chapter 1, verse 6. He said, I and my father's house have sinned. Do you remember the confession that the prodigal son had all ready to give to his father as he came back to him? It was, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Confession is good for the soul. And if you want to be a person who is after the heart of God, you have to have a penitent heart. That involves confession. And it also involves a genuine sorrow for your sin. Not so sorry that you have been caught, but rather that you have sinned against God. It's a genuine sorrow 
for doing wrong. And you recognize that your wrong that you have committed has been against Almighty God. Against you and you only have I sinned, David said in Psalms 51. Well, now obviously he had sinned against Bathsheba. And he had sinned against Uriah. And he had sinned against all of the people of Israel too. But ultimately his sin was against God. And it was that sin that he was so overwhelmed by. The fact that he had transgressed against God. His heavenly Father. And we need to come to that same recognition, that same conclusion, that our sin is against God. Uh, Whatever it is, your sin, my sin, it is against God. Uh, The sin of bitterness is against God. It's not worth holding on to. I don't care how badly you have been wrong. God does not put a footnote on your bitterness and say, if you have been wronged to this degree, then it's okay to hold on to it. No, He doesn't say that at all. What He does say though is this, if you cannot forgive, then you cannot be forgiven. I mean, whatever sin it is that we are guilty of, a sin of impurity, the sin of anger, the sin of selfishness, the sin of gossip, it's all against God. Every time we transgress His law, we are sinning against Him. And so, we must come to this point in our life where we are confessing that sin to Him, genuinely being sorry for it, and then we must turn away from that sin. Acts 3.19, Peter said, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I have a footnote in my Bible. I looked at it. It was right there marked on that word return. Repent and return. The word return means to turn from sin and to turn towards God. It's interesting too to see how this word return is used in other passages of Scripture. When Jesus was preaching about the destruction of Jerusalem, Mark chapter 13 verse 16, He said, and I quote, And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You're in the field working, and the city is being attacked and destroyed, and Jesus says, don't turn back to go to the city to get your coat. You take off. That's what the word return means. It's a turning from one direction to the other. From from sin, we're turning from sin towards God. Another uh, chapter, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus, you remember this? He's walking with the flow of the crowd and, and the woman with the hemorrhaging of blood comes up behind Him and she touches the hem of His garment and power flows from Him to her. And Jesus, the text says, He turned to see, to ask, The crowd, who touched me? And so that that one's obvious too. He's walking with the flow of the crowd. She touches him. He turns around and he says, who touched me? 
The word return in this passage from Acts says that there needs to be a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. That's repentance. There's another scripture in Acts that that talks about this, that that says this heart change. It, It needs to be evidenced through a life change. Somebody might say, well, I thought repentance is just a heart thing. Well, Certainly it is. That's where it starts. It starts here. It starts here in the mind. It goes to the heart. We feel the conviction. But there needs to be change of life too. Acts 26 verse 20 makes that very clear. It says that Paul kept declaring to people everywhere that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You remember at the beginning of the sermon I gave you that progression of sin where there's hesitation, there's contemplation. We see the same progression here with repentance just in a different kind of way. There's first conviction. And once there is conviction, there needs to be sorrow for sin. And once there is sorrow over sin, there needs to be confession to God for that sin. And we ask Him to forgive us. And then there needs, and obviously we need to accept that forgiveness. We need to acknowledge His forgiveness to us. And then there needs to be a change of life. A turning away from sin and a turning towards God. Now I will say this, that turning away may take some time. Because we didn't learn that sin overnight. We're not going to unlearn it overnight, probably. Let me ask you, is God able to forgive us of our sin? You bet He is. And we need to claim that forgiveness. Let me read to you verses 7-12 to there in Psalms 51. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Notice the confidence there. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That was David's plea to God for forgiveness. And he sounds to me very confident in God's willingness and God's ability to forgive him. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I love that verse. He will not despise or turn away from a person whose heart is broken over their sin. If you would spend some time in this chapter and read it, you would notice in those first few verses as well, amidst all the talk about sin, as David is confessing his sin to God, there was a lot of talk too about God's mercy and forgiveness. And and that says to me this, whatever we do that is wrong, however deep our sin goes, the grace of God is deeper still. His grace and mercy are absolutely amazing 
He forgave David who was guilty of murder and adultery. He forgave Peter who had denied Him three times. Jesus, he, he, he forgave Paul for persecuting the church and killing Christians. And you know what? He's, he's so willing to forgive you and me if we'll come to Him in genuine repentance. The blood of Jesus is enough to cover all our sins. We saw a beautiful example this morning of one whose sins were washed away by the blood of the Lamb. It can happen to anyone who surrenders their life to Jesus and then for for those of us who have already made that decision, which is most of us here today, when we sin, we can come to Him and we, we repent. We ask Him to forgive us and he, he cleanses us all over again. But it happens as we have a penitent heart before God. You want to be a person who is pursuing the heart of God, who is after God's heart, then you have a repentant spirit about you. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your forgiveness to us. Thank you that you hear our prayers of repentance. Thank you for David, a man after your own heart. And yet, as we look within the details of his life, we see the fleshly side of him, his failures, his weaknesses. And yet, you were willing to forgive such a sinner as him. So it gives us hope. It gives us assurance that we too can be forgiven whatever our sin is. So help us to be broken before you. Help us to be humble. Help us to realize that we need you desperately. That we cannot make it on our own. We pray this in Jesus' name.